everybody. Welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. And this is Ryan Parker. And uh, we weekly uh, talk about something interesting that's on TV. We are a couple dudes with PhDs in theology, which might seem odd, but we're hoping that we can uh, bring a, like kind of a uh, interesting like religio-spiritual theological angle to what's going on uh, on TV. And this week we are... Uh, we're talking about a show on HBO that Ryan, I really wish more people were talking about. It seems like it's really been under the radar. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's a little, we're taking a darker turn here. Than, we need uh, Neverland. It's like, than last oh my week. gosh, you cannot uh, turn on the internet without hearing opinions about leaving Neverland. It is a four hour documentary in two parts uh, by a British filmmaker named Dan Reed. And it follows, um, it, it's basically based on interviews with two men now in their 30s, Wade Robson and Jimmy Safechuck. Uh, I found out on the Oprah documentary called After Neverland. Um, or the Oprah interview dealio that uh, what happened was um, really the the director just heard about these guys bringing a lawsuit against the Michael Jackson estate and thought it was an interesting story, ended up sitting down with uh, Jimmy Safechuck and interviewing him for, two days and then with Wade Robson for three days, like three, nine hour days must've been exhausting. And then uh, cut it into a documentary using a bunch of footage. I mean, it's amazing how much drone footage is used actually in this deal. But uh, you know, one of the themes is that it kind of, I don't think they, I don't think he wanted to set foot uh, on the ranch. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the, uh, whenever they're talking about a place, so if Jimmy Safechuck is talking about the house he grew up in, uh, where Michael Jackson would come and hang out with him, uh, there's drone footage over the top of that. There's also a lot of kind of uh, family, um, like home movies, and there's like some home recordings. We see images of faxes sent by Michael Jackson. So I'm just kind of setting up the... Um, yeah, of course. That, yeah, uh, that's a lot of documentation, the, the right? Visual, like visual and, of it, what, and and audio. Here's what it's it, before I get into what it is. Here's what it yeah, sure, not. sure. It, it, okay. it does not. It shows a couple quick clips of Michael Jackson videos early on, and then that's it. Okay, it's not. It does not even address, which drove me a little bit crazy. It does does not even address like Michael Jackson's. Uh, increasingly odd behavior it never mentions him hanging his kid blanket out of a uh, window at a hotel in front of screen or the fact that that he has a child called blanket yeah it does not address his changing um appearance uh it 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 really to to dan reed's credit stays focused on the stories of these two men talking about how when they were seven years old, in the case of Jimmy Safechuck and um, no, seven, seven years old for Jimmy Safechuck and 10 years old for Wade Robson, how Michael Jackson groomed them, 
and began longstanding sexual relationships with them in the case of Wade Robson, a sexual relationship that lasted years. I'm sorry. I, th- I believe he was the one It started when he was seven um, and it lasted till he was 13 or 14. Um, yeah, there's, yeah. For people who haven't watched this, the documentary, this will be a little confusing because their stories are so similar, but, you know, but a little uh, different in some important uh, respects. And we may talk about that later, but yeah, I, yeah you're, yeah. what you're pointing out is it, is that it's at uh, a, a very young age the, and for a very it, long it, time. I, I, think, right? I think, I think that Dan Reed was asked that th- this caused quite a stir at Sundance and he was, the director was asked this at Sundance. He's been criticized um, by the, I mean, it really in the in the most ferocious of terms, been criticized by the Michael Jackson estate for not talking to anyone in the Jackson family. They've accused this of being one-sided. Um, this isn't a true documentary. It's not true journalism. Dan Reed's response, he, Oprah asked him the same question. His response has been the same every time. This is a story about James and Wade. This is their story. This isn't actually a story about Michael Jackson. This is a story of two victims of sexual assault. Um, and b- before we get into the kind of the, the, the nitty gritty of it, and what you and I both thought of it, I will say this. One thing uh, I, I appreciated a lot about the Oprah interview and, and one clarifying remark that she made is she said assault is such a nebulous term. It can mean so many things. What this is a story of is sexual seduction by an older man on young children. And, and really, when you watch it, uh, That's right. It, it was it is seduction. Right. I mean, it was a story of seduction. So. Uh, and manipulation. And yeah. because what we can talk about later and what we come to and the question that that everyone inevitably asks is, well, why did you lie when it was your turn in court or Which, why did you yeah. why did you speak up? For, exactly. and, and it's really manipulation because it's the way in which. An older man is also the way he is defining what's happening and also defining the risk and the danger inherent in it. Right. So telling these impressionable boys at a young age, if anybody finds this out, your life will be real. This is is repeatedly what both of them said in the documentary and to Oprah and in in other public venues. They've said, I mean, um, James doesn't say this, but Wade says, I loved Michael Jackson. I loved Michael. I was in love with him. And he said, if I told anybody about this, it, we would both go to prison for our lives and he would never be able to see me again. And even at age 22, he was still spellbound by Michael Jackson. I, I want to throw something at you and get you. Well, Tony, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Tony, put a pin in that. And, and, uh, do you feel like you need to set up more about just kind of logistically what well, sure. you know, for the for the audience? Like it sounds like, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It's a documentary about these two men who um, claim that Michael Jackson sexually abused them from a very young age for many, many years. Um, I mean, that's 
and well, you know the accusations are the accusations, and we don't need to go into any deep graphic details here. We can leave that to the documentary, but it is very disturbing material, especially in that first uh, part. Yeah. In the in the first part, the second part really goes into. I don't know if you have a better way to put it, Tony, but like maybe the the why that uh, the why it happened, at least on their side, right? Like what you were yeah. already talking about the manipulation yeah. through the court proceedings a little bit. But it kind of shows really the – and even in that second half of the second part really gets into the effect that it's had on them as adults. So yeah, but the, I, the, the first part as, – As kind of setting up the structure of the, of the series, that's kind of what it's doing, right? The first part I'd say really is about the seduction of the two boys and – we'll get into this – and of their families and particularly their mothers. The, Michael Jackson seduced not only these – these boys with whom he was having sex, but also, of course, their families, because the only way you get to a seven-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy is through their parents. And so that's the first two hours. The second two hours really is a combination of when Michael Jackson begins to pull away from these two boys you know, they're they're having sex with Michael Jackson at different times, but but they're kind of close together. But Michael then discards each of them and moves on to other boys. Um, the most famous being Macaulay Culkin, who has uh, always denied that they ever had any sexual encounter. Although this documentary, you, you know, the 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 subjects of this documentary seem to very much doubt that. Um, but the, the second two hours, the second half is really about Michael Jackson pulling away from these two boys and their feelings about that and their feelings of abandonment. But then Michael Jackson circling back when he needed them to testify because he was going to court for charges of child sexual abuse. And and the assumption, I mean, it's such a disturbing revelation uh and i'm just kind of thinking about this in hindsight that he knew that he could circle back to those two young men at that point yeah. and count and, on and, them for their defense. And, i mean that is the, and, the predatory nature of that is is just disturbing and their moms and in one case their sis his sister wade's sister and yeah yeah that's correct yeah so and there's a lot of other i mean there's a lot of, of interview with the moms and there's also time spent with the, uh, uh, James as an only child, but with Wade's siblings, his sister, who was very close with him, moved to L.A. with him and the mom, the brother who stayed back in Australia and then the father who really tragically committed suicide in in large part, it seems, as a result of struggling with bipolar disorder and losing his family to Michael Jackson, basically. I mean, for all, for all intents and purposes, who, yes, Michael yeah. Jackson I mean, became the new patriarch of their family. And who can know, who can know fully uh, the, where you would draw that line. But I feel like the series, this documentary series suggests that the father intuited this was a bad move yeah. from the start. And I think there's, I think there's probably sister not to go. There's probably been a lot of families who, although not so tragically, have been torn apart by a child's desire to pursue stardom, and maybe one parent doesn't 
you know, so it's not like he knew that um, it doesn't feel like he knew that from the start Jackson was going to assault and, and molest his child. But I think he was also deeply suspicious of you're taking, this is a, such a big move and you're going to live with this guy. And all, I, I just, it, you get the sense that he was never, never comfortable with it. And that combined, as you said earlier with his bipolar disorder resulted in one of the, you know, next to what happened to these boys, that is when you kind of look back on the series, one of the, the next tragedy, oh, right. right? Oh, of, tragic. So yeah. here, I, I want to throw a couple things at you. The first is this, because we, we've had these two um, very intense kind of cultural moments that are that um, the, the center of gravity of which is sexual assault of minors. One thing that struck me in this documentary is how extraordinarily, you might say, preternaturally calm. James and Wade are in these interviews. I mean, they're. It, it, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, they're so calm. It's almost a little, not creepy, but it's it's just noteworthy. Okay, so you've got them being super calm. Okay, okay, and then you've got R. Kelly talking to Gail King on CBS this morning, going coming absolutely unglued screaming, swearing. I mean, I felt unsafe for Gail King watching my father, you know, watching that. Yeah. So I'm just saying like, you know, and, and we've also had in, in our not too distant past, you know, Brett Kavanaugh having these very strong emotional outbursts, defending himself against uh, accusations of sexual assault and his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, super calm totally under control. So my father would have said, and this is not, this is, he, of course he didn't make this up, but he would have said those who scream the loudest are the guiltiest. So yeah. uh, when you look at what the Jackson estate, now granted they're granted, they're defending a family member. Um, but and $2, when and, you, and $2 when billion dollar and $2 billion yeah, assets. Let's don't, yeah, let's don't forget that. Uh, I mentioned this because my wife, who is a, uh, and I think it's important to set the, the stage here. You're a parent of three children. Yep. I do not have children, um, but my wife and I watched the film together. She is a nurse practitioner, obviously spent 20 years in an ICU setting. Um, she, a pediatric nurse practitioner as well. So um, she watched those those two men. And I made that comment to her that, you know, when you texted me about how calm they were yeah. and she suspected two things, first off, they clearly been in hours and hours and hours of therapy between yes. the admission and then the recording of this film, um, and have probably been, you know, counseled, coached about how to talk about these things and coach may be a, Harsh word, but you know, I, you know they are, they are characters in a documentary, okay. and so. But and the other thing that Amy said, and then the other thing that Amy suggested is that there are probably some some medication in place as well, antidepressants. Oh, um, that that and she and I and I forget which person, but she she suggested. Oh, it looks like he may be on some form of medication, um, kind of an antidepressant, maybe. 
again, completely understandable. She was not being judgmental or yeah, that never came or up. Or anything, I, it, but I, I mean, to their credit, both of them have said this is the first time that they ever sat down and told the entire story from beginning to end. They've both been in therapy, which is you know an hour an hour a week or whatever. But I mean, think of this. I really I couldn't. Sitting down for like Wade Robson did for three days, nine hours straight, sitting in a chair, telling the story from beginning to end and and managing your emotions. I just find it. I'm not I'm not trying to interpret it. I just think it's noteworthy, especially when you put it up against R. Kelly. I think it's a great I think it's a great point that you make about. But I think it's a hint at the fact that they these guys have. I think it may be a testimony to the fact that they're not making this up, that they're that they are confident in uh, what has happened to them and expressing that. But also, don't let's don't mistake. I mean, that you're you're talking about the beauty of editing here. Yeah. I mean, we don't know right. uh, in what order they talked about these things. We don't know um, how many times they broke down. And the filmmaker, you know, the filmmaker has crafted this story along they may be telling their story but the filmmaker is crafting this no documentary is true is no it's not truth yeah, yeah so i'm not saying that they're lying and i'm not saying that the film is uh misrepresenting the story but it is a crafted narrative so yeah for sure and i think that i think that calmness that you're detecting while maybe kind of indicative of who they are and how they managed to begin to tell their story it's also maybe a result of some some lengthy time in the editing booth. Yeah. Now, another thing to talk about is that two of the main characters in this documentary are the mothers. And we get to the end of the four hours and um, James's mom says, I fucked up. I had one chance to be a parent. This is my only child and I fucked it up and I will live with that till the day I die. She has watched the documentary Um, and James has said he is in the process of forgiving her. It's part of the powerful ending of the film. Wade's mom says, I feel bad, but I don't know what I could have done different. Wade's, uh, Wade's older brother says, I love my mom. I don't know that I will ever be able to forgive her. In the Oprah interview, Wade says, I don't know if I will ever be able to forgive my mom. I'm on a journey. She asks him, has your mom, your mom said in the documentary, has, you know, she had not yet heard the actual details of the abuse. Has she heard them now? That's when Dan Reed, the filmmaker, spoke up and said, I screened the film for both the families and joy asked me to fast forward through those parts. Oprah looks at Wade. Incredible. How does that make you feel that your mother still won't listen, won't hear what Michael Jackson did to you? And Wade just said, it's very hard that she won't. So you got these two moms, both of whom were seduced. And here's my question for you from, from kind of a I'm, – I'm, I've been thinking all day about how to frame this question for us to discuss. 
because I don't want to make it too churchy related, but I just think like if that would have been my family and I would have been um, a nine-year-old who knew how to moonwalk and was, had the chance to move to LA and was sleeping in a bed with the King of Pop, I honestly think that there were people in my parents' lives, particularly people who went to church with them back in the 70s and 80s, who would have said, this is crazy, don't do this. So it, it's, this isn't so much a church thing as there, no, I there, was, a uh, who, there who? was a community yeah. around them who would have said, okay. this is crazy, what are you doing? You yeah, I agree. This. So, Tony, that's a good – I think there's there are a million questions in that one comment or question. And as Amy and I watched it, and I, again, coming back to the fact that we don't have children, we don't know what this experience is like. But we, we said as we watched it screaming at the television, what are you doing? Why are you putting your son or in this position or allowing your son to be in this position? Um, this – how does this not strike you as wrong, as unsafe, as at least just weird, yeah. right? And I, you know, I think back and I'm like, man, my parents would have never put, let me do that or allowed for me to be in that position for the same reason. Family members, oh, my grandparents would have come unglued. And I, but, you know, I think back, I wasn't in that position. My parents was weren't in that position. Um, and it made me think about, uh, oh, and how would my parents' family have known that that's what I, how would my parents' parents, my, how would my grandparents, how would my parents' friends have known that I was in that position? There was no internet. There was no social media leaking these stories until, and then the, when the media gets their hands on these stories, it's months or years after these events have taken place. I'm not defending uh these two men's mothers, I think, uh, Wade's mother is, is, is almost unforgivable. She, the, the film ends and she still just does not get it. And it, it, I don't, I don't believe like, her. Remorse. Right, it's almost like she doesn't believe it. Well, like I think she, well, I don't know if Michael did this. I don't know if she doesn't believe it so much as that she's just in denial about, I mean, the enormity of her complicity in this situation, it may be just, impossible for her to bear. Uh, Tony, but it also made me think about to get a little churchy. And I really, I want to be very careful about how I say this, but you know, Amy and I talked about it and we're like, man, if we ever had kids, no way in hell. Right. I don't care how famous this person is that has taken an interest in my child professionally or um, whatever, you know, but I look back and, you know, we're in seminary and you have conversations about theologians um, who have committed uh, sexual indiscretions. You talk about Martin Luther King Jr. And you talk about this notion, and we, I want to circle back to this later, but this I, the celebrity status and how that consumes and affects everything around you. Yeah. Um, I, I think the best thing, you know, people say, oh, I wouldn't. I would never cheat on my wife, right? Blah, blah, blah. Like, or they want to be quick to throw, uh, I don't know who's doing this, but if somebody is like quick to, to be super critical of MLK, 
I mean, the best thing that we can say is we just don't know what we would do in these cases. We would hope and like to think that we would make better decisions. But until you're in that position, you just don't know. And again, I'm not defending them. I'm not certainly not excusing, you know, what happened. But I'm just saying it's a I have seen celebrity at work. I I was at a screening um, and Matthew McConaughey walked into the lobby of a theater and Tony, I'm not exaggerating when I say the energy in the entire room shifted. Like I watched every single person's attention shift. And when I kind of followed where where that energy was going, I saw that it was McConaughey in the middle of the room and I I had never seen anything like it. And it's just the the impact that that has, um, the the corrupting nature of celebrity is something that, you know, I think we're still continuing to to kind of wrap our heads around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, even in the Oprah thing, and it it comes up also in the documentary, but Oprah says it flat out. She says, it's hard for us even to remember what Michael Jackson was like, because there is no star in the world who is that powerful. She says, then he was quite simply a God. He was a God. And that's that's interesting. Interesting. To think to, to to use that language, but of course, celebrity has while it still exists, and to, I, I think I agree with that statement that nobody's quite as big as he was. I mean, we're you know last we're recording this last night. LeBron James surpasses Michael Jordan on the all time scoring list for number four in the NBA, um, and the, the way the NBA has grown, the superstars in that league, there are so many great athletes now. And I guess what I'm trying to say is superstardom has become so fractured through social media. You can be you can be a celebrity just because you I, have so yeah, many followers yeah. on YouTube. We have lost that sense of what real stardom is. I know? agree. But let's talk about this idea that Michael Jackson was a god, um, that he was somehow – uh, a, a species who is a level above human beings. I, I get that he convinced people of that, but of course it wasn't true. He wasn't a God. You might say he acted like a God or he thought yeah. like a God or people, well, you and I know that. people yeah. treated him like a God, but like Oprah should know he wasn't a God. You don't say Michael Jackson was a God. You might say Michael Jackson thought he was a God or people treated him like a God. He wasn't a god, and he he was a very weird dude who um you know part of his seduction was that he convinced people he didn't have a childhood, so now he was trying to relive his childhood i mean here's what's crazy to me, Ryan, about thinking about like that he had this godlike status, and people to now online are defending him in 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 the face of these allegations. You know, and they'll never and, um, you know, these uh, James and Wade are getting death threats repeatedly. Oprah said it in her interview. She's like, you know, we're we're all going to pay for this. Like, we're all going to pay for even just doing this interview. Um, But here's what's crazy, man. There was footage, you know, like news camera footage of Michael Jackson walking like he'd be on his tour, walking through a European city, holding hands with an eight-year-old kid who was called his touring companion. 
Yeah, that's nobody like no. How do you miss that? No journalists from the New York Times. I mean, look at what journalists from the New York Times are uncovering about the Trump uh, uh, administration right now. I mean, the the scoops that they're getting and the sources that they're reporting on. It's incredible. How how would how did nobody uncover this? And then how did the guy get um get get found not guilty twice? Twice. Again, it's the power of celebrity, man. Yeah. Money and fame. And that you know, I want to ask you this question. I, I was speaking to a colleague about the film, and I'm not gonna name names, but they said they refused to watch the film because they love Michael Jackson's music so much and they are aware that these things happened. And you mentioned this before we started recording about having a conversation about separating art, the art from the artist. This is not the first time uh, in the entertainment industry that we've had this conversation. It certainly won't be the last, but this person who I was speaking with said, made a comparison to Woody Allen. Yeah. And that the differences between Michael Jackson and Woody Allen, for example, is that Michael Jackson had such a traumatic, um, atypical, broken childhood that it so fundamentally altered his personality that you can't simply compare him to other, let's just say, I want to say predators. I know that dehumanizes people, but people who have been found guilty or accused of sexual indiscretions and crimes that you can't hold Michael Jackson to the same standard because of what he endured. My response was there have been many people who've had similar childhoods, at least from an abuse perspective. I know the celebrity being a member of the Jackson five is radically different, but there are many people who endure terrible childhoods who don't go rape seven and eight year old boys. So I wonder uh, what you make of that comparison or how you think about um, as someone who consumes culture, but who, who also does so from a theological, yeah. religious, spiritual perspective. How do you how do you navigate I mean, that? I, I had the same conversation with somebody who said um, there's got to be a way to separate the art from the um, the sins of the artist. And this person said, you know, like uh, for all we know, uh, Michelangelo was having sex with young boys while he was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling or something like that. Like we live in a world right now where we know things and so it's held against them. But, you know, how, how can we separate the art? And I said, well, there's a couple things. I mean, um, there is a difference. Like I get that it's well substantiated that MLK cheated on his wife with multiple women assuming that they were maybe it was, he was their pastor. Maybe there was a power dynamic, but maybe they were consenting adults, you know, this kind of thing like that's to prey on a seven year old child. To me, the morality is like, there are some sins are worse than others is what I'm saying. And maybe it's easy for me because I never really liked pop music. So I never really liked Michael Jackson music. So it's easy for me to say that, you know, I'm not going to listen to that music anymore. And I know that like a dozen stations in Canada over this uh, last week have said they're going to stop playing Michael Jackson music. And I heard him. I heard it. I heard him on the radio. I was in a lift 
yesterday on the way to a meeting and a Michael Jackson song came on the radio. And here's what we know, Ryan. I mean, you and we, you and I might have certain perspectives on this, but here's what we know is that capitalism and commercialism will ultimately triumph. So if his money is, if his music is making money for radio stations or on movie soundtracks or whatever, it will still be used. It will ultimately yeah. still be used. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. If consumers rise up and say we're actually boycotting radio stations to play his music, then it won't be used. Like the the because of the society we live in, the market will decide. That will that's what will decide. I I, th- I hate to admit that you're that you're right on that. I I hate to admit it. You know, it was interesting watching this. Um, documentary because I had forgotten that on the side of my refrigerator, I had two postcard copies of famous photographs of Michael Jackson. Uh One in which he's dressed like the devil and the other in which he is in the arms of Jesus and kind of the reverse Pieta. So, um, of course, you know, I'm watching this and those immediately come down. Um, but I reflected that I purchased those only um, eight months ago yeah. at the National Portrait Gallery in London, uh, which had given over an entire wing of the gallery to a an exhibition on Michael Jackson and his influence over pop culture. Yeah. So let's let's end by discussing this. Eight months ago. Oh, we're done? We're, we're, you're, you're just over talking about this, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> we can cover some more ground, but I think this is an interesting conversation that I'm sure you'll have opinions about. When you bought those postcards eight months ago, both of these men had already gone public. Wade Robson had been on national TV talking about this in very explicit terms, and the two of them together had filed a lawsuit against the Jackson estate. It was all public. It was out in the open, but you didn't know about it. It was not a story. I, it it wasn't a story on my radar. Until I will admit it. That's either film, and so that's what I want to. That's what I want to talk about. Is like the power, not just the power of film, but the power of this documentary. The power. I mean, I'm actually the power of social media. I'm actually surprised the fact that it's on HBO. That it, I, I thought it would get way more. Um, way more buzz if it were on a, a streaming service that more people had. But uh, I mean, I guess a ton of people get HBO now because of Game of Thrones, right? I mean, it's H. I'm sure HBO is doing just fine. But um, it this documentary put these allegations into the public consciousness, even though they had been public. And let's be honest, nobody had paid attention. Journalism to, to I, I, right? Yep. Yeah, I haven't paid attention. I, I take, you know, responsibility for what I consume, and I hadn't, I hadn't, that was not on my radar. Yeah. So, what is it about this documentary that brought that? I mean, for for some, for for in in part, it's just because of the era we're in, the the moment we're in, when television is so hot right now. It's the same reason. A month ago, everyone was talking about the Fire Festival because those documentaries came out about the Fire Festival, and nobody had talked about the Fire Festival since the Fire Festival, you know. And 
So there's something about TV right now, uh, documentaries and docudramas, um, limited series, people, it, it just, it's, it's amazing, right? It's just an amazing. Well, I think back to, I think back to me, I agree. I think back to making a murderer and how, you know, I had heard from some, some people at Netflix that, you know, ask how, cause they don't release numbers. Right. right. But, um, you know, we ask, Hey, what's a, what's, what's kind of surprised you? What series has done well, you know, no details, no hard numbers that, that you are surprised by or whatever. And it's a year or two ago, right. Somebody said, I don't know. I don't know that we'll do another docu-series and we'll be hard pressed to do a narrative series that can top making a murderer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it's of a, uh, of a piece with what you're, what you're referring to now. Um, I think for me, um, it was knowing this idea of celebrity. And I, I want to come back to that before we finish, uh, and reference a pot, another podcast that I think people should go listen to after this one, of course. Um, is I I had heard about it at Sundance. Obviously, I was at Sundance. I got there on Saturday. This had screened on Thursday. Um, and obviously, you see in social media the reactions and the fervor around it. Uh, but also knowing that HBO had picked it up and that it was going to be you know it's going to be able to see it at home because they only played it once at Sundance. And I, I really do think that it cuts through the clutter. Um, you have a a respected um, network like HBO. Uh, you have social media, you have a, a, a festival uh, that brings some attention to it. And then the narrative that social media is driving about it, you know, I, I think that's true of almost every famous docuseries that we're talking about short of the festival exposure. Yeah. But it's that combination of very, uh, very accomplished filmmaking right. Of good storytelling paired with the push of, of social media. Right. And, like and, and, how yeah. I, I see, I, I, man, out here, networks, studios, all the platforms, Netflix, Amazon, all that. You, you should, you've been in LA yeah. and for people who haven't, and when you're here, you can't help but notice the, the advertisements, the billboards, yeah, the billboard. the bus ads for films. Yeah. It's crazy. It, no other city in the country, maybe New York, uh, will you see so many uh, billboards devoted to uh, content, right? Films right. or s- series, nothing, no advertising whatsoever for leaving Neverland, right? I think social media has done all the but, work for but, them, and it's but, really interesting. And you were at Sundance. I know you didn't see it at Sundance, but you were at Sundance. The buzz it got at Sundance was massive. Well, off of I would say off of social media because because of it was only one screening, and that opening weekend, a lot of people who are in town for that opening weekend leave on like Monday or Tuesday. Uh-huh. It it wasn't a film that I heard a lot of people talking about. I maybe heard one or two because you wait in line to go into the screenings, right? I may have heard one or two people who had seen it, and of course, it, it was kind of the same narrative that you could see on social media: devastating, yeah. right? Gut punch, blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, not that I'm trying to be dismissive of that, but, um, it's, uh, the buzz really was outside of Sundance, right? Like the people that saw that there triggered it, triggered that buzz through, through social media, through the reviews, right? I mean, it received, uh, it received very good reviews from the critics, right? Um, you were, when I brought up, Hey, we should talk about these, you started sending me these really 
interesting articles, which I read after I watched yeah. it. I was trying to go in with as kind of a clear ahead as possible to watch it. But um, the journalists have really, and critics have responded favorably to what is a very difficult, um, a difficult film to watch. Yeah. I, it, it, you know, my, one of my favorites has been um, a, a, a guest of the uh, previous guest on, on killer serials podcast is Hank Stuver, who's the TV critic at the Washington post. And it, what's so compelling about that is he writes about having to cover Michael Jackson and cover the Michael Jackson trial and what Michael Jackson was like during the second trial. I mean, basically he was like a bag of bones. The, you know, the guy was just like a bag of bones in a suit with makeup on. And, yeah. and then, you know, Michael Jackson died. Um, I, you know, shortly after that trial, very, very briefly after that. Trial. Yeah. And he was like, I thought I was done writing about my, I was so glad to be done writing about Michael Jackson because it was so hard to write about a guy whose art was so great and life was so terrible. And now, you know, here yeah. I am writing about it again yeah. and yeah. more about I wanna, life than the great art. Yeah. I want to, I want to make a comment. We can, I think this may be a good place to wrap it up because we, we uh, give, going to give some people some direction to go to listen to something that I found quite interesting. Um, I believe it was before I, we went on our walk on the Camino, uh, the Bill Simmons podcast, which is as consistently great listening, always interesting guests, good conversations. Uh, one of my favorite recent episodes was when Bill hosted a conversation with Scooter Braun, who maybe a lot of our listeners don't know, but is a, is kind of an Uber producer and manager in the music world. Um, started off, uh, a family as brother was like a successful athlete. He had scooter himself, I think had some athleticism. I think may have gotten a scholarship to a D three school in Atlanta to play basketball, but quickly dropped out of school and started doing concert and venue promotion in Atlanta, kind of came up with ludicrous, the rapper, and just really took off in that world and has, has grown and evolved and now has managed the likes of Kanye West and Justin Bieber and folks like that, just about as high level as you could be. And it's a fascinating conversation in many ways. Uh, but I think it's most uh, relevant to this conversation when Bill says, you know, why does it look like everybody you represent has this massive breakdown? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Kanye, Justin Bieber, just to name a couple. Uh, what is it? And and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, Braun says something to the effect of, "Well, do you want to get spiritual on your podcast?" You know, Bill's of course like, "Yeah, let's go." And uh, Scooter Braun says, "I don't think humankind. I don't think we as humans were made to be worshipped. Uh, it is not in our DNA." It is not in our species. We do not have it in us to live with that type of adoration and attention. We were made to serve. We were, you know, it gets a little spiritual there. We were made to, we were made to worship something more than us, like something or, or a power higher than us. And we are not that power. Um, and they go on and talk a little bit more about it and the stress and, and that the conditions that that type of adoration creates. But, you know, when you think about, Oprah saying he was a God and your, your, you know, vehement assertion. No, he was not right. 
Um, it's really compelling to hear someone who is so close to celebrity see that take place. Um, and I think you see that to an extent with, uh, with Jackson. And I think it comes through a little bit in the, in the series, not quite so on the nose, but I think it's that idea of celebrity and how it, wow. how it can consume yeah, somebody really like is, and a culture. It could consume a culture really, too. So I'll put a link, I'll put a link to that podcast, you know, uh, online yeah. and, and stuff and people can find it. It's, it's a, and just that guy's story too. Yeah. And, and who he's been with and how he's come up is really, well, I really like that. Um, that's really, um, yeah, that's fascinating. And, and I, I, it, it, he's been so close to people who've been treated as gods or demigods at least that, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I think that's right. And it messed up Michael Jackson and he messed up other people as a result of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to have watched it. It was not easy to watch, but I'm glad to have watched it. And, and, um, you know, we'll now turn our, what's the, we don't know what we're going to no, talk we'll about next, we'll but it's going to have to be something lighthearted, right? right? Fair, yeah. Well, thank you everybody yeah. for listening to Killer Serials. We hope you liked the conversation. We'd love to have you chime in on social media. Um, let us know. Subscribe and share, yeah. please. Thank, thank you. you. Please and thank yes, you. for sure. And uh, hey, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.